by the light of his countenance from today's collect. Dazzling. In El Prado, the treasured National Museum of Spain, located in the Verdantura Tiro Parque in Madrid, there's an enormous collection of paintings, mainly from the heady days of the Spanish Empire. Goya's, Velazquez's, El Greco's abound. Fortunate as I was to be in this tremendous palace several years ago, I walked around and became saturated with all the splendid magnificence of it all. Room after room of splendor. And then I came upon a small painting, perhaps two feet by three feet, stuck in a narrow passage between two of the grand salons. I was immediately struck by this haunting oil. The painter Zerberon, a master of shadow and light, emphasis on shadow, entitled this painting, Agnus Dei, Lamb of God. Words we will repeat in a few minutes as we do at every Eucharist, all our lives. The painting is stark, it's clean, it's provocative. The likeness on the canvas is of a lamb lying down on a dark gray slab against a black background. The lamb is dazzlingly white, as some lambs are, and has an aspect on its face I would call anticipation, though it may have been resignation. It was so moving to me, I wept. I thought of this painting some days ago as I was preparing these remarks for this complex feast, the Transfiguration. The shuns, you know, annunciation, presentation, visitation, incarnation, these add-ons which turn verbs into events, well, I have some understanding of them. The transfiguration, I have avoided fully grasping. It seems theologically dense, or maybe not. It's daunting to contemplate this event in the life of Jesus, which occurred on a singular morning on that particular morning, Jesus must have had a deep intuition that something would occur, needed to occur, must occur. As an utterly human being, he would not have had foreknowledge, but as a man of deep interiority, he trusted the still, small voice within. Many years ago, the Episcopal priest and errant trickster, Alan Watts, wrote, Jesus had an overwhelming experience of cosmic consciousness at an early age. I sense a deep understanding in Watts's insight that this utterly human Jesus had a consciousness of immense proportions, perhaps like the ones we're invited to develop. And perhaps on this particular morning, this consciousness would be fully realized. In this passage from Matthew, Jesus took his threesome, Peter, James, and John, up the mountain. These three were apparently his best friends, always being invited along. Jude, also an apostle, and my confirmation name, the saint of hopeless cases, was never invited anywhere. <laughs> Nonetheless, this posse, per usual, accompanied Jesus up the mountain. And in the text, without any further introduction or explanation, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes dazzlingly white. There's more. Moses and Elijah were somehow present, suggesting the law and the prophets, the twin pillars of Jesus' Jewish tradition. And they were talking amongst themselves, 
So much astounding stuff going on in this and more. Suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them all and from the cloud came a voice, not a still, not a small, not a silent voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This cloud, this voice, this declaration like a Jesus baptism comes now as Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem to meet his holy fate. Peter and the others response to this majestic voice falling down to the ground overwhelmed with fear. For Peter, this would not be the last time. In Renaissance paintings, the three appear to be unconscious, evidently. Jesus then came to his friends and he touched them. He told them once again, do not be afraid. So complex a vignette, transfigured. One definition, a complete change of form into a more beautiful or spiritual state. Nice, but this verbiage doesn't quite capture what we've just witnessed. Jesus' transfiguration is a pivotal, a singular moment. His human nature visibly encounters the divine. God and person are fused, and Jesus' true identity is revealed. That identity rests on the fulcrum that God, this ineffable holy presence, dwells with and in him, is in him, is palpably manifest in him. And this him, my beloved son. The great ecumenist Yaroslav Pelikan says, the holy is too great and too terrible when encountered directly for people of normal sanity to be able to contemplate. Only those who care not about the consequences can run the risk of confrontation with the holy. Nicholas of Cusa, the 15th century German mystic wrote, for you are the word of God humanified and you are man deified. This transfiguration, God humanified, man deified. This moment so magnificent and incomprehensible, nonetheless his friends cowered in fear, willfully unconscious to what is occurring. They perhaps fearful that the necessity of their transformation was at the call of this rabbi whom they'd been traipsing around Galilee and Judea for some three years now. Too demanding the surrender to this call, too dazzling the light for their deeply shadowed commitment to their unworthiness, too armored to allow this light to penetrate their finely honed defenses. Too much to bear this transfiguration now about and through and within Jesus was also to be about them. Last week in his homily, Stephen used the word transformed at least by my count seven times. This transformation, this transfiguration is what we are invited into, beckoned to undergo when we encounter Jesus. Like Jesus, we are invited to be transformed our faces to shine like the sun. Our clothes made dazzling, even if they're dazzling navy or dazzling fuchsia or dazzling black. We're called to be opened up, to become conscious. Like Jesus, we are beckoned to be fused to the divine, the Holy One, the one we call God. I have a dear friend, a cloistered nun in upstate New York, whose name aptly is Grace. When we met, in, I was in my early 20s, she was in her late 30s. 
We met in a small prayer group in St. Louis. We've been correspondents ever since. Several years ago, Grace, whose life is immersed in contemplative prayer, began identifying the, divide by, the divine by only one word, capitalized, love. I found it annoying. I too have a resistant heart. It felt so intimate. But Grace persisted. One of the voices love chose to break through to me, a lifelong transfiguration still in progress. This God whose obscure but perhaps proper name is capital L love comes to us through many voices, from many touches, over many years. It comes with subtle light and soft explosions of dazzlement. This love comes when another sees us as we are, not as we would be, and our true selves begin to emerge. This love comes in prayer when we experience what we previously had not and are at once present as our true selves emerge. This love comes when we wash another's feet on Maundy Thursday, flooding us with the humility consonant with the spiritual life. We are changed as our true selves emerge. This love came this morning at open table when one in need meets the parallel need in the other and both are perhaps imperceptibly transformed as true selves emerge. This love knows no bounds. It penetrates our fears, our resentments, our beliefs that we're just beyond the pale, believing we are anyone other than the beckoned person created by love. Love does this all, and then love moves more. It's inexhaustible. God, capital L, transforms us, transmogrifies us, transfixes us, and then transfigures us into the only thing love wants, that we become ourselves, we become our true selves, our holy selves. You and I, we are the person love requires, this person essential to God's accomplishing the work of love in this world. No hands but ours, no eyes but ours, no hearts but ours. This is the way of love. This is what Jesus experienced on the holy mountain. This fullness of love, this love is what Peter and the posse desired and eventually succumbed to, their egos finally falling away. And this is what we desire. We would not be in this sacred and beautiful space this morning for any other reason. We would not stand or kneel at the altar rail to receive the Eucharist with any other purpose but to fill our heart's desire to live out the love that dwells within us the desire to become whole, ergo, holy human beings. And as we do so, we become love's emissaries to a wounded, hungry, chaotic, yet desirous world. The aforementioned inexpressibly beautiful paintings by Zerberon, the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, has two additional features I did not mention. There is a fine, faint gold nimbus, a slight halo floating just above its innocent lamb face. And its four hooves are tied together by a nearly imperceptible bit of rope. I suggest this painting is of the transfiguration, this dazzling, beautiful lamb of God on its way to death. This too is part of the transfiguration we undergo. The dross is burned off and that process, as we each already know, is a dying the dying to the false self, to the poseur, to the self-sufficient personae, 
that keeps us from each other and from God, the one with a capital L. That sage homilist from two weeks ago referenced earlier, said earlier, several weeks ago in this pulpit, if you want to know God, look to Jesus. He repeated it as if we had not heard this before. I had not exactly. But in that moment, perhaps more exactly, if you want to know God, look to Jesus. After pancakes this morning, during the next few weeks of Lent, we will continue this journey with Jesus. We are always on as we accompany Jesus, as we look to Jesus, as he and we are on this holy, fated journey. Even an ignominious death does not have the final say. God, capital L, does by the blessed names, all of them that God goes by. And we, increasingly drawn in beyond our imaginations, find ourselves, fears and frailty and what defects of character yet remain, by grace, dwelling with Jesus, transfigured in the inexhaustible heart of this love.